Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we talk soccer, as Canada's men's national team wins in a place they've so often lost to take a big step closer to a first World Cup qualification in decades. We look into why it's so easy to sign up for online subscriptions, but often so hard to get out of them. But first, on the eve of the fifth anniversary of the deadly terrorist attack on a Quebec City mosque, we hear from one man who survived despite being shot seven times, what he thinks gave him the strength to live that day, and what he believes must be the legacy of that horrific event. We begin tonight in Quebec City, where tomorrow marks five years since an attack that stunned this country and was condemned as an act of terrorism. It's a day now designated as a National Day of Remembrance and Action Against Islamophobia. It's in memory of the victims of the deadliest attack on a house of worship in this country's history. On January 29, 2017, a lone gunman walked into the Islamic Cultural Centre of Quebec City, the city's biggest mosque, after evening prayer and opened fire. It all lasted only about two minutes, but there were 50 people inside at the time. Six died, 19 were seriously hurt. And for those who survived, the wounds inflicted that day will never fully heal. One of them is Ayman Darbali, shot seven times while trying to stop the gunman and awarded a Medal of Bravery for his actions that day. Ayman Darbali joins me now. Thank you and welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for your invitation. I know on anniversaries like this, it must be difficult to have to go back to that day. Um, I was wondering five years later, how have, you ref- how have your reflections on that day changed and, and, and to what extent? Excuse me, I didn't pick up your question. I'll, I'll ask you. Yeah, it, looking back, I mean, we, this is an anniversary. It's five years now. And I was wondering, when you look back and think back on that day, have your reflections about it changed at all in the five years? And how so? If, um, it, I have some changes. Uh, if you are talking about my uh, changes on my personal uh, uh, aspect, uh, um, there is a, a little bit change physically because, uh, as you might know, they I'm disabled, so uh, I can move only my arms, and I I'm trying to to gain to regain some uh, some abilities, especially by having some uh, physiotherapy sessions right. uh, twice twice a week. Uh, Yeah. Uh, did I answer your question? Or yeah, no. I was. I mean, I, I guess. I guess it was a better. I can. I can. I can ask you another one. I, I guess it was really about how do you look in the five years that have passed? Do you look back? How has how has your reflections on what happened that day changed, if at all? Do you do you look back with anger? Do you look back with 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 oh, sadness? Okay. Or do you yeah. No, no. Um, uh, I'm. I, I feel like uh, comfortable now, and I, I'm looking forward. I'm looking for this, the future. Uh, well, uh, the, remembering the uh, the uh, all the brothers who fell that uh, that night, uh, it, I, I feel sorrow for the the moment. But uh, I think that uh, we need to to struggle to against Islamophobia, which is the the, the reason of this uh, this tragedy behind this tragedy. So I mean that we, uh, I have a duty uh, toward my all, all the brothers who fell that night, 
is this this duty is to struggle against Islamophobia and all uh, types of uh, discrimination, discrimination and, uh, and racism. Uh, so um, I feel like uh, I have a duty more than I don't feel anger. Uh, Sometimes sorrow. I feel sorrow. And I feel sad, uh, and I, I have the special uh, feelings toward uh, the, all the families of uh, the victims. But yes, I, I think that uh, it was uh, uh, to honor the, the memory of our brothers. We need to to fight uh, together against Islamophobia. I know that, that your injuries were quite severe that day, and it's changed um, some of the things you're able to do, but I've also read many times that you feel very fortunate that you still get to see your kids and spend time with them and be a father and be a husband. Of course, yes, of course. This is why uh, I, I try to see uh, from the positive uh, perspective uh, the tragedy. After beyond the tragedy, I'm I'm very lucky to to survive, and I'm very lucky to have my memory and to be able to breathe uh, properly and to see my my children to come back to to my house. Uh, and because uh, in the beginning, just after the the tragedy, the the doctor said that my my health situation was very bad. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, I was able to move my arm. I was able to remember all my, my family to speak and to remember uh, all the things. Uh, my memory is, uh, is correct, is good. Uh, so I thank God this is the, 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 the main thing, the most, most important thing. Uh, even though I lost the, the, my, uh, my physical ability, uh, but uh, at least I can... I can hear, I can speak, I can see, and I can remember all the all the things. And this is the, the most important thing. I, as much as you can, I was. What do you remember now about the day, about that moment when you were in in the mosque, and what happened afterwards? I remember all the things. So I remember. I mean, all the what happened. And the most, all of it. All the, all the, yes, all the. I remember all the, all what happened. Uh, uh, it, it, it took uh, all the this this tragedy took just uh, one hundred seconds, uh, uh, one minute and forty seconds. All the this tragedy from the beginning till the end. Uh, he shot seven persons. He. he, uh, he he, he shot 48 bullets. Uh, five people were injured and six people uh, were died uh, in the in just uh, 100 seconds. Uh, I remember when we 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 heard some uh, some shooting outside. Uh, at, that, at that moment, uh, for a while, we didn't realize the the reason of this uh, astonishing uh, uh, noise. Uh, and some of the brothers, they, they came closer to the door to see what happened. And suddenly I saw them uh, running toward the mahrab to, to, to the uh, other side of the, the room. And uh, they were hiding themselves in a tiny 
piece of uh, room, uh, very tiny piece of room. I think one meter per two two meters uh, two meters uh, square, and they were they were like thirty people, thirty persons there. I was the, at that moment. I was the closest person to him. So I was between him and the other worshippers, other brothers behind me. Uh, for a while, so I, I, I took, a, uh, uh, I looked at them uh, for a while, and I saw many people, a uh, uh, crowd of many people in a tiny piece of uh, a tiny room, and <clears throat> so, so uh, for the for a while, I thought that he, I have. I had to prevent him from from coming closer to to the worshippers because if he could be able to come closer, uh, there would be a massacre, a mass massacre, a ma- massive massacre. Uh, right. He could be able to, to 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 kill a lot of people. So for a while, uh, I I was like doing some movements to to to, to draw his attention. Toward him, and he started firing on my direction. I saw that he, uh, some bullets went to the wall, and uh, <laughs> I think that I, I thought for a while if he if he shot in my direction, the the bullets will went to the wall, and did, did, uh, uh, no nobody would be shot. And for a while, so I decided when uh, when they, he stopped fire firing. So I jumped and I decided to to run toward him, to to stop him. Uh, even though I know that uh, the distance was too long, and uh, I was pretty sure that he would be able to shoot me before uh, before catching him. So uh, I received the first bullet on my leg, and I tried to uh, to uh, to come closer to uh, to walk. And, I, and then I threw two bullets on my abdomen. Uh, and I tried another time to to walk towards him. And this is what we saw in the security cameras in the, uh, mm-hmm. the court, in the, in the tribunal, in the, uh, in the court, we saw the, uh, the security cameras. So I tried three times. Then he charged one time and he, he came back to me and he shot me another other bullet. Uh, still, for the third time, uh, I, I felt that my uh, I received a, a bullet on my spinal cord, uh, right. which is which which entered from my abdomen and uh, and struck this bullet struck struck my uh, spinal cord, and uh, I felt like I was cut by uh, with a knife. That moment, mm-hmm. so uh, I wasn't able to move anymore. And I raised my my fingers, raised my arm to make uh, like a testimonial of of, uh, of faith testimonial, uh, mm-hmm. testimonial of faith. And in, in a while, just for a while, he saw that my arm raised arm, and he shot me on my arm. This is this was the, the seventh bullet uh, which I received on on my arm. Uh, I was bleeding a lot, and. Uh, uh, I heard people screaming. Uh, I saw uh, a very heavy smoke, <laughs> and then, uh, and then I saw, I heard my some brother said, "Amen, amen, uh, Mustafa, brother Mustafa, saying, uh, 
Amen, amen. Stay with us. Amen, stay with us. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Stay with us. And it was very difficult for me to open my eyes. And I, I'll do my best because I, I was bleeding a lot. Yeah. And then, uh, yes. And then I saw, I heard the policeman uh, screaming and they... Uh, the, the police entered the the mosque and he was, he was right. screaming, "Nobody move! Nobody move! Stay on the, on the ground!" Uh, that's what. After that, after that's a while, so I, I I saw his uniform, and I was like re- relieved. After that, I was relieved when I saw the uh, the police uh, uniform, and after yeah. that, I, I lost consciousness. I've been speaking with Ayman Derbali, a survivor of the attack on a Quebec City mosque five years ago that killed six people. And tomorrow is also the National Day of Remembrance and Action Against Islamophobia to mark that day. I was asking you before the break about what you think allowed you to survive that day. What gave you the strength to survive that day? Well, uh, I think that uh, uh, I have my, my daughter uh, at that moment, uh, the, the day of the, the tragedy, my daughter had uh, 11 months, uh, 11 months, she was 11 months, and I, I was, um, just, just before, before uh, losing conscience, I was like seeing her on my, uh, I was remembering her, and uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, I was, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was um, thinking about her, about my daughter, my little daughter, and I, I said that uh, uh, I wouldn't see her any anymore. I wouldn't see her. My, I wouldn't see my my daughter. Prayer. I don't know. Uh, and I, I had one of the poly uh, uh, the, uh, the, the the ambulance. Uh, uh, care. Uh, she, she she told me she told my my wife that uh, when I was in the ambulance I was struggling and I was uh, I was uh, telling her that I will lose I will lose my my daughter I will lose my daughter and uh, and she she told she told that to my to to my wife uh, uh, she said that uh, I was. Uh, uh, I was struggling I was struggling to uh, to breathe I was struggling to. To open my eyes, uh, I don't know. This is my destiny. This is my destiny. I, you know, the uh, my hour didn't come uh, yet. So uh, even 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 though I received seven bullets, and he was determined to kill me first, and he he didn't uh, succeed in that. So uh, this is. Eamon Duvalli, I I know your destiny also has been to try to fight now against Islamophobia. Um, I know tomorrow is a big day. I wish you strength. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight. Um, And and thank you so much for for letting us know how you feel. Thank thank you very much. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you. Have a good day. Dreams of men's World Cup qualifying have so long been dashed in Canada, and Honduras was a place where they often came to an end, not last night. 
A 2-0 win keeps the Canadians undefeated and on top of qualifying standings heading into a huge match against the U.S. in Hamilton on Sunday. You can forgive soccer fans for thinking maybe, just maybe, a decades-long World Cup drought for the men's team could be over at last. With more, I'm joined by Josh Cloak, staff writer at the the Athletic and author of Come On You Reds, the story of Toronto FC. Welcome to the show, Josh. Oh, thanks for having me. I mean, um, just to sort of start with the very latest development, which was a win in Honduras last night for Team Canada, um, maybe explain to our listeners how important the win was for this tournament, but also historically just how often Canadian World Cup dreams seem to go to end in Honduras. Yeah, Honduras has never been kind of a, 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 I guess we can just say a nice place to play for, for Canadian teams, right? Most people think about... The loss in 2012, uh, that 8-1 loss against Honduras, in which Canada needed a win to go through to the final round of World Cup qualifying, which they are in now. Uh, and they got, you know, embarrassed um, in a way that, that cost a lot of people their jobs. Um, I think that one was really resonating with a lot of fans. But, you know, their their history of Honduras, you know, has been really unkind for a generation. The last time they won there was in 1985. And that makes a lot of sense. It's a historically difficult place to play, right? There's the, the fan base is rabid. This is a fan base that has been known to, to throw things at fans, including, you know, a lot of former players will tell you about having bags of urine thrown at you and, and all manner of objects. And, you know, you have a heavy military presence in and around the stadium and it's a really intimidating place to play. Um, and so for Canada to go in there and just put in a real kind of workmanlike performance, right? It wasn't glamorous. I think, you know, the two goals that, that Canada scored bookended a real kind of slugfest. Um, so for Canada to kind of stay composed, um, be really kind of tactically astute and keep Honduras away from goal and not kind of allow them many chances. I, I think that speaks to where this team is at right now. And, Speaking of that, uh, looking at how they won, because it felt like a game they they so often in the past would have found a way to lose. Um, where how did how did this win symbolize the kind of team that we've seen over the course of this qualification, and where does this leave them in the qualifying uh, in terms of qualifying for the World Cup? Yeah, I mean they still stay top of the table in the World Cup qualifying, which I, I honestly think if you would have asked anyone, kind of any Canadian soccer person coming into this, if, if after nine match days, they'd be top of the table. I, I, I don't think anyone would have believed that. This is a team that has so much quality, but so much attacking quality. There was questions, you know, about this team's uh, defense and, and, and their kind of defensive midfield structure coming into this tournament. So I was, I think a lot of people are really surprised where they're at. And, you know, in particular, CONCACAF is a very difficult place to win on the road, right? Teams can win at home, but, you know, like I said before, um, the kind of locales that a lot of teams go to, this isn't a place where a lot of players often venture to. You know, you look at the Canadian team, it's made up of of players that play in Europe and and play in MLS. And so they don't often go to travel and and play in Central America. So that, again, that, that can be an intimidating process. And, for them to go and get a win on the road in Honduras um, is really crucial because, again, the, the majority of their games remaining are on the road. So if you can do one, you can kind of build a lot of confidence off that. 
and and look ahead and just say, look, we know what to do. We know what the game plan is. We know how to kind of block out those distractions. And I think that's what kind of gives this Canadian team a lot of confidence is that, you know, that this was a big one to get over the hump, to get a win on the road in Central America because they have another crucial game in, in El Salvador in just a few days. Um, and so I don't think it will be as intimidating for this team moving forward. For listeners who may not be familiar with how the CONCACAF um, World Cup qualifying is set up, they had an initial round where teams, a certain amount of teams were eliminated. And then they go into to, it's an eight-team sort of play down where they're at now. And I think even most not casual soccer fans will recognize that Mexico and the U.S. are really the dominant teams. Costa Rica's in there too. Who's left and who's really pushing to qualify? And where does Canada sit in terms of its chances of making it to the World Cup right now? So there's a few kind of websites that, that track, you know, teams' chances around the world of qualifying for the World Cup. Uh, and one website I saw this morning, one stat that got passed around, Canada right now has a 99.5 chance of qualifying for the World Cup. Um, that's, that's, pretty, un- that's pretty good. That's pretty that's, good. <laughs> well, it's, it's unprecedented, right? I think if you look at the, the history of this, this national team, yes, they're in the final round of World Cup qualifying can be a real long, drawn-out you know, procedure. It can take you know, sometimes up, up to two years right, to qualify for a World Cup. And just for context, yes, Canada is in the final round of qualifying. They haven't even been in the final round since 1997, right? Uh, before the best players on this this Canadian team were even born, right? They usually, you know, they very often get bounced by some of the minnows, you know, of, of CONCACAF. Um, and now that they're considered, you know, one of the best three teams, again, it just speaks to the growth of the game and, and the work that, that's gone into this program. Um, but in terms of the teams that are kind of in and around there, I think Panama and Costa Rica are the two teams, you know, beyond Mexico and the United States that if you're a Canadian fan, you probably have to worry about Canada's chances of qualifying in this window are basically slim to none right? Because Mexico gets their win last night. Um, So you're really looking at how are Panama and Costa Rica going to play over these next two games. And I think a lot of people have probably the first or second game of the next window kind of circled on their calendars as the one when when Canada could qualify Um, their first game, they go to Costa Rica, um, or excuse me, the first game they go to Panama, which could really, you know, change things, change the course of, of this team. Um, so they're, look, they're right there. They're really, really right there. And it's just been kind of for, for observers like me, you know, you come into this, this qualifying campaign back in September and you think, wow, maybe the talent is there. Like they, they have on paper, arguably the most talented squad in North America, right? But they haven't done it before. So you're all you're going to do is is have questions about this team. But every step of the way, you know, they've answered the questions. They've 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 beat Mexico. They've they've gotten draws against the United States. They've gotten wins in Central America, right? They they're they're the only undefeated team. So this team has done a really good job of just answering every question along the way. Um, which again speaks to the depth of this team and, and speaks to the, I guess the the fact or the reason that that so many people across this country are are hopping on the bandwagon as as well they should. I'm speaking with Josh Cloak, staff writer for the Athletic and author of Come On You Reds: The Story of Toronto FC. We're talking about Canada's win 
over Honduras in World Cup qualifying in Honduras uh, last night. A big win for the team, still on top of the standings in terms of World Cup qualifying, uh, with another big match coming up on Sunday in Hamilton, where Josh happens to be. I wanted to ask you about that as well. But but quickly, I mean, I think a lot of Canadians, I mean, we've been watching soccer over the past little bit, but it happens to be, I mean, Christine Sinclair happens to be the biggest soccer name in this country after the women's uh, gold medal victory in Tokyo and so forth. But really, the men's team now is getting some real backing. You're seeing that surge of, of, of fans sort of latching onto this team. Tell me a bit about what makes this particular team um, so appealing and, and so special as a Canadian national team. I think for me, what makes this team so, I would always say important is that it represents um, Canada, modern Canada, in a way that maybe some of the teams in the past didn't, right? You look at the the key faces on this team. Alfonso Davies, you know, was a refugee to this country. Jonathan David uh, was an immigrant from Haiti, right? Tejan Buchanan um, came from, you know, real kind of humble beginnings uh, in Brampton and just kind of graduated, moved up on his own. There's This is a team, you know, made up of players of color, right? This is a team that speaks to, I think, what a lot of people kind of, you know, appreciate about Canada. And that's, you know, the diversity and the multiculturalism that that makes this, um, you know, again, if this country is any good, it's all at all. It's, it's because of those two things, I think. Um, and so I think when people look at this team, they can kind of, they can identify with it. Right, because um, you know the, the the country is constantly changing, and and I think you know for a lot of young Canadians, they can look at this team and they can say, well, you know, if, if Alfonso Davies can come from somewhere else, um, settle in Canada, and and grow in Canada, and grow to the biggest stages in the world, you know, Champions League winner, um, th- then then why can't I? And and the same goes for a player like Jonathan David, right? You know, immigrant from another country comes here um, and just moves from, you know, really recreational soccer just outside of Ottawa um, to to Belgium um, and then to to France um, and, and is now one of the top goal scorers in France. It just speaks to, you know, again, that that belief that I think a lot of young Canadians can have watching this team that if they can do it, I can do it too. And that's not something I think we saw very often with Canadian national teams in the past, right? You know, national teams in the past were built the way that um, they were kind of modeled after a lot of Canadian hockey teams in a way they were, they were physical, they were defensively sturdy, and they were really unglamorous to watch. This team is exciting. They're fast. They're dynamic, and they're just so compelling. And I think that's why so many Canadians are kind of saying, "What? What? What is this team? I, I want to be a part of this team because it's it's contagious, right?" I'm back with Josh Cloak, staff writer for the Athletic. Uh, we're talking about the U- Canadian men's national team's win in Honduras last night in soccer, uh, leaving them at top on top of the World Cup qualifying standings for now. Big game coming up on Sunday that we'll talk about as well. But Josh, just quickly, there was a fascinating article that you wrote because there's a lot of talk now about Canada qualifying for the World Cup, obviously, and the expectations are high. So that's brought a lot of us back to the last time we qualified for the World Cup, which goes back a very long time now to 1986. Um, but tell me a bit about about looking into that 1985 qualifying games, those last ones against Honduras, and the parallels between then and now. 
Well, yeah, I mean, to, to go back to 1985 when, when Canada did qualify for the World Cup, the World Cup then was very different for what it is now and Canadian soccer um, was very different from what it is now. Essentially, Canada had one game in that they had to win against Honduras and, and basically the winner of that game would go to the World Cup in 1986 to Mexico. And the Canadian head coach at the time, Tony Waiters, who is an Englishman, um, he wanted to make life difficult um, for the Honduras team. And that's something that, interestingly enough, you talk to players that played on the national team through the 90s and the 2000s, that's something they felt didn't happen enough. Sometimes they felt that they rolled out the red carpet for opposing teams and would have games in beautiful Vancouver or Toronto and you know, and and they would, you know, put these other teams up in great hotels. Um, but Tony Waiters said, no, let's let's make life difficult. Um, and so he proposed to have the game played literally at a park in Newfoundland and St. John's. Um, and, you know, that made sure that the game was subject to intense winds, rain. And, you know, the Honduras team themselves really had trouble finding St. John's on a map. And there's a few great stories about how some of their traveling fans ended up in St. John, New Brunswick, um, because they couldn't tell the difference. And so, you know, Tony wanted to give this Canadian team every advantage possible. And, you know, you, you send this team out to St. John's and uh, for a week ahead of time, and they, the locals really welcome them um, and and turn this game into kind of a spectacle that they could call their own. Um, and again, it was, you know, you think about a, a massive, you know, World Cup qualifying game. Now you picture tens of thousands of people in a modern stadium. Again, this was at a park with kind of makeshift benches around. And you can, when you watch the game on YouTube now, you can still see the school buses in the background. It's just, um, it's incredible. But it, it was a, you know, a win that was really still probably the most important win in Canadian soccer history. And the goals were scored by, you know, an amateur soccer player at the time, which again speaks to what Canadian soccer was. You know, George Pecos was a, a he was a water meter reader, and that's just this it, again. It, it was a very very different time, um, but to beat Honduras then really kind of it cemented that team's place in in history. And and I think when people talk about Honduras again, they talk about the eight one loss in in 2012. But I think people should probably and my hope is that as more and more people get interested in this men's national team, they, they kind of take a look at the history of you know soccer in this country because there is a lot of history, not all of it positive, but there are some really great stories um, of some people that really kind of forged a path you know, with this game in this country. So fast forward now back to 2022, um, there's a big game coming up in Hamilton on Sunday. Tell me a bit about who's coming and uh, what the atmosphere might be like and what's on, what's at stake. Yeah. So um, this will be the second game of, of this three game kind of window, you know, that international teams play multiple games within the space of about a week and a half before players go back to their club sides. And so uh, this game against the Americans who are in second place right now is just, it's incredibly crucial to, to kind of stay, not only stay at the top of the table, but separate yourself from the Americans and, and buy a little breathing room. Um, the choice was made to have the game in Hamilton in January, which I think would probably confuse a lot of people given that I, you know, I, I went out for groceries today and it was minus 15. It took me a while to get the car started and 
but you're going to be playing a World Cup qualifying game because you don't want to to have your players cross time zones and you you know you they're going to be traveling back to El Salvador the next day, so you want to kind of keep them in the same time zone. But you also want to try and make life as difficult as you can for the American side. I mean, they've countered by having scheduling their games this window in in St. Paul and Columbus, which are kind of equally cold. Um, But I do think this is just going to be another one of those kind of historic games in this window, because you look at the the games at Edmonton a few months ago, you know, you had tractors uh, plowing the snow off the the pitch kind of in the, in the, in the warmups. And I, I, I suspect we might see something similar, right? This is, these are the kind of games that, that, you know, I, I think can kind of rally a country because people can look outside and say, yeah, I might've tried to, to kick a ball in kind of similar frigid surroundings. Um, the stadium will only be half full because of government restrictions, but um, I suspect that it will be a largely Canadian audience. You know, Canadian national teams have sometimes struggled to to draw home fans, right? You get a lot of, um, you know, immigrants and people that have come to Canada but still support teams from their home. Um, and I, I think we're seeing less and less of that. Uh, so, Look, it'll be another big one for the men's national team. A win would just put them really in the driver's seat for a World Cup spot. Um, and again, you know, it's it's in kind of a prime time slot too. So I think a lot of people are banking on this being another game to kind of galvanize the country. I'm looking forward to it, Joshua Cloak. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. So last night, we talked about this battle between Neil Young and Spotify that ended with the streaming service dropping the Canadian rockers' tunes from its playlists. Young had objected to Spotify hosting the Joe Rogan Experience, the most listened to podcast on the streaming service, over what Young says, and a lot of scientists agree, that Rogan is dishing out misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines. Now, I've been following along on social media yesterday to see what was up, and there are enough Spotify users out there angry about the decision to drop Young that some have been trying to cancel their subscriptions, and they're finding that kind of tough to do, it turns out. We've also been asking you to text us your most frustrating cancellation experience, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. Let us know who you are and where you are. No subscription required to text us and let us know about your most frustrating cancellation experience. Trucker Kevin and Airdrie says, my most frustrating thing to get out of was Columbia House. Remember them? When they sent out with CDs, could not get out of their subscription. Thank goodness they went out of business, he says. Well, I think I got my first Columbia House was probably LPs. That's how old I am. Then cassettes. And honestly, I think I was still getting deliveries to my dad's place years after I left home. Um, so I understand you there. Tough to get in, easy to get into Columbia House, always tough to get out. Well, joining me now to talk Spotify, subscriptions, difficulties, and much more is tech analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. Carmi, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Great to be here with you tonight, Ben. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, I mean, you you know this stuff. What is it about Spotify? I'm not sure whether they've this is systemic or just now, but what makes it so difficult to cancel some of these subscriptions? Well, because they design it to be difficult. And, and, you know, we're talking about Spotify now, but really this is just the way the entire industry works. If you want to sign up for something, they, will, they make it dead simple, easy for you to do it. Every single website 
has a sign up and a login button at the upper right hand side. And it's you know pretty big. It's usually in a pretty bright color graphic or button or something like that. Super easy to find. We've almost been conditioned to know where they are. Uh, and so they want to get you into it. They want there to be no friction at all for you to sign up, start using it, get addicted. That's just the, the way the digital industry works. That, you know, we are addicted. We know this. We've seen the science. But, then, you know, the problem here is that because digital, there's no physical. You don't have to get out of your house. If you want to cancel something, you don't have to, you know, schlep downtown and, you know, go to a building and cancel it there. You can do it right from the comfort of your own home. So they introduced digital tools to make it harder for you to do so. They don't put the buttons in a place where it's easy to find. They bury them a few levels deep. They put them in a menu somewhere. They give them names and titles and menu headings that may not necessarily say delete your account. So if you search for delete my account, you don't get anything in, in return. So, you know, easy to get in, hard to get out of. And that's because the engineers want it that way because Let's face it, these are companies that are in business to make money. They don't want to make it easy for you to run for the exits. I mean, you're right. Some of them, it takes you about a nanosecond to sign up, and you literally have to call them to to a number that no one ever answers. You have to call them to unsubscribe. I mean, I'm sure it's it's all on the up and up, but it seems terribly unfair, no? Oh, I, I, you know what? You're way too generous here. I wouldn't even call it on the up and up. I think it's dirty pool. And, and, and I think it's time the industry got called on it. If, if you make it three-step easy to get into something, it should be three-step easy to get out of it as well. Maybe put a couple of dialogue boxes in. Are you sure you want to? Because there's no going back at this point. You know, by all means, like, you know, you know force people to reflect a little, little bit. I'm perfectly fine with that. But when you deliberately hide them, from the end user basically what you're doing is you're trapping them in your service i remember a few years ago when facebook was facing one of its many controversies and of course there was another movement there for people to ditch facebook uh and 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 facebook and twitter and other services started flooding with messages people were saying i can't really delete my account because i don't know how to do it and I, I realized then that we were onto something. And sure enough, Facebook kept, not only were they burying it, but every once in a while, and Facebook does this, but they all do, uh, they would change where they were in the menu structure. In other words, you would learn where it is, and then they would sort of shake it up a little bit so that you wouldn't know the next time you wanted to go delete the account. Or if you did a Google search for it and you found one sort of walkthrough of the process, well, that applies to the way it was six months ago, not today. So it's incredibly confusing. There's no sort of one way to do it. There's no industry standard. And that's by design. Because if you're an investor, you don't want the company to make it easy to lose revenue. You want the company to make it hard for consumers to leave. You want to make it hard for them to take their money and, 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 and leave. And that's, it's good for business, but of course, bad for consumers. I'm speaking with tech analyst and journalist Carmi Levy tonight about the difficulties to unsubscribe from things. A frustration of mine. It's like the seven levels of hell sometimes to get out of things. <laughs> the irony as a consumer is that when they make it easy for you to get out, I tend to go back to them if I want to get back in. Um, sometimes you just cancel something because you don't need it for a few months or you're going away or you're not going to be, you know, it's the middle of the summer. Maybe you're not going to be watching as much TV or listening to music the same way. Um so if they make it easy for me to get out, I always try, I always, to me, that's a big plus. The ones who make it impossible to get out, once you're out, you're like, that's it. I'm not going back. You know, I used to think this exactly the same thing. You know, if you're nice to me when I suspend the service, then maybe I'll want to come back to you afterward. And I think, you know, in the old, maybe pre-mobile, pre-social media, pre-digital uh, way of, of 
doing business. I think that certainly did apply. Customer service had a very different meaning back then. But I think now, um, because there's so little friction associated with digitally connecting and disconnecting from businesses, I think the rules have changed. And that concept of customer loyalty has certainly shifted. Um, And I don't think they put as much weight on it. In other words, the companies don't care if they tick us off. Basically, they just want to slow us down enough so that we'll give up today and maybe we'll reflect a little bit. Maybe we'll think about it. And a few days later, it, maybe we won't, want to, we won't want to delete the account at that point. So I think it's changed a little bit. But I think it'll ultimately come back to bite them. Because if you think about it, Spotify was the original big music streaming service. And a few years ago, like, you know, Apple was still waiting to see what it was going to do. There really wasn't any competition. And so that's why they are the 800-pound gorilla of the market. Well, now there's a lot of competition and everyone's gunning for for the leader. And and Apple certainly is breathing down their neck. They've been giving it away for free when you buy an Apple device. I mean, that's heavy competition. I think at some point that'll come back to bite companies like Spotify. In other words, as competition heats up, you got to get nicer because consumers will remember. And obviously, Apple picked up Neil Young just to just to hammer home that point you're making. They they they, they have Neil Young, and they've been advertising it. I've been getting ads all day about it uh, that they have. I love it. Yeah, uh, I guess what's a bit what the kind of the insidious part about it is never huge sums of money. So it's always ten dollars here, eleven dollars there. I mean, it, it it is a lot of money if you're budgeting, but it's the kind of thing that you can ignore if it becomes too much of a pain to try to cancel, right? If it, like you think, okay, that's it. It's it's nine dollars. I'll 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 eat it this month, and I'll try again next month. Absolutely, and and you know, but you know, you're absolutely right. It doesn't seem like a lot of money up front, but it sure does add up quickly. You know, on a year on a yearly basis, that's fairly significant. Um, certainly, if you have a family plan, if you have one of the more premium Spotify plans, it can be that much more expensive. And um, and I think especially if you are you know like many subscribers, you subscribe to more than one, so it's part of your overall menu of choices. And then you, know, you put them all together and you realize, wow, that's uh, that's close to a car payment in some cases. That can really add up uh, before you realize it. And so I think consumers are starting to get wise to the fact that these subscription services, they look really appealing and really cheap and really cost effective at the front end, but uh, they come with certain costs and certain inconveniences, and they aren't as cheap or as easy or as free as we thought they were. Um, and I think we're starting to, be, to sharpen our pencils a little bit and really starting to question do I really need to spend that 10 or 15 or 20 bucks a month? Or, you know, if I really don't want to deal with this company, maybe I should be putting my money somewhere else. And I think we're going to start to see that, especially as the, the market matures. Most of us who want to have a streaming music service probably already have one. And so that growth is going to flatten out. Companies are going to have to change the way they deal with us if they want to keep us paying month after month. I think one of the most interesting things I saw about there was obviously a lot talked about today about why Spotify would have would have gotten rid of Neil Young to keep Joe Rogan, and one of the most interesting things I saw was that well Spotify isn't a music company it's a it's a digital platform remember mm-hmm. that right it's content not music um, exactly exactly and 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 exactly and they and they paid Joe Rogan it's a hundred million dollar contract he is the world's biggest podcaster you do not upset that deal. That would be more damaging to Spotify's bottom line than losing Neil Young and the accountants and the entertainment leads and everyone else at Spotify know this. That's why they went with Rogan, not Young. We're chatting with tech analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. We were talking about Spotify and troubles unsubscribing from Spotify. People who are angry over the platform's decision to drop Neil Young uh, are finding it a little bit tough to uh, unplug these days from Spotify. We discussed that. 
Uh, Carmi, you mentioned Apple Music, and it's a nice segue because Apple is certainly singing a happy song all around these days. Huge quarterly profits. Huge oh, yeah. revenue. Oh, this, this, is a, this is a story. I almost feel like it's Groundhog Day because every time Apple has a quarterly earnings call uh, where they talk about their performance over the last three months, it's almost like the same thing. Record this, uh, you know, blow up that, exceeding analyst estimates, exceeding guidance. Uh, and of course, this, you know, this most recent earnings call was the most important one, their final quarter of every calendar year. It's the holiday quarter. And that's when they always record their biggest numbers. And, uh, this was certainly one for the record books. Most revenue, $124 billion in revenue, almost $35 billion in profit. Um, you know, you know, 11% above what their original guidance was. So their, their most optimistic projections, they blew right past those. In an economy where supply constraints and the global chip shortage are basically killing everyone. So the fact that they can continue to have a blowout order when everyone else is crying uh, is just beyond remarkable. And again, I don't want to sound like an Apple fanboy, but I've been saying this again and again and again, just for, you know, whatever cylinder you look at, this is a company whose engine just continues to hum. I was shocked by this number, Carmi. 1.8 billion devices on the Apple network now. 1.8 billion. Now, I know many people have three and four, but that is a huge number. It is. I mean, if, if, if you know, we assume and we know that that's not the case, that everyone has one. I'm looking around my home office. I have way too many Apple products. But, um, you know, that would be like, you know, one in one, one quarter of the entire Earth's population has at least something Apple in their home. And that is just, it's remarkable. And I think it, it illustrates that Apple has really transitioned. Remember a few years ago, they dropped computer from their corporate name um, mm-hmm. because they didn't want to be seen as a computer company. And that really was the inflection point. That's when they stopped selling Macs, basically. And they started becoming a company where the technology contributed to your lifestyle. It really became a lifestyle company, a premium, near-lux lifestyle company. And, and I think that's it's, it's still driven by technology, but think about sort of how they sell technology. They don't talk about uh, the, how fast the processor runs inside. They don't talk about all the geeky stuff that's going on inside. Nobody cares about that. It does it work? Does it allow me to do the stuff that I want to do? And Apple, more than any technology company, has cracked that code, really brought technology to the masses in a way that no other company does across so many different product lines. And, you know, they're, they are where they are for that reason, because no one else seems to have that ability to converse with everyday people in exactly that same way. I remember just a few years ago, people were saying, well, you know, Apple hasn't really innovated at all in the last decade. You know, when's the last time they invented something new? And it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to matter. No, it doesn't. I remember, you know, here, we're just over 10 years out since uh, Steve Jobs passed away. And I remember at, you know, as he was uh, declining just before he passed away and then immediately, immediately afterward. I remember, you know, everyone was saying, well, Tim Cook, well, he's no Steve Jobs and he's certainly not going to be able to leapfrog the company to the next level that, you know, Steve Jobs did. And I said, look, you know what? First of all, he was, you know, right by Steve Jobs' side for a very long time. And, and you know, he's the guy who executed on Steve Jobs' vision. So if anyone has that ability to do that, take it to the next level, it will be him. And so, sure, the, the world hasn't changed in many respects. A lot of the technologies that Apple has developed over the last 10 years are extensions of what we've seen before. 
uh, but they're very shrewd extensions. It's, sure, it's evolution, not necessarily revolution, but it's the kind of evolution that the market really needs now. And, you know, for, for proof, look no further than how we're using these products in the middle of a pandemic. We've never needed connectivity better uh, or more than we, than we need it now. We've never needed our technology to really rise up to the challenge than we do now to connect us at a time when many of us are stuck at home. Um, and these products are absolutely crucial to that. And Apple really has been riding that wave. They've figured out sort of, you know, how to answer the questions that we have. I want to do X, Y, and Z. How do I do that? Well, go to your Apple store or hit, hit up the website, open up the app. You've got your answer a day later. It's at your door. Uh, no other company operates on that level. Certainly there are other successful technology companies, but not as comprehensive to the degree that Apple is. Well, it's a perfect segue. I've got a few more minutes here, and I really wanted to talk about an early pandemic darling that's fallen on some hard times, and that's Peloton. What's happened? Well, this makes me a little bit sad. So, you know, Peloton, you know, basically this was the, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, as gyms shut down, people were looking for ways to exercise. And Peloton is this sort of very high-end connected bike with content. You basically join an exercise class, a spin class in your house. What better? You know, and, and everyone I know who has a Peloton is absolutely like they are, you know, just like the, the, you know, people are sort of cultishly attached to Apple. Peloton was that and more. Um, but the problem is, yeah, you can only sell so many luxury bikes to so many people. Uh, and I think they've, you know, they're, they're reaching their upper limit. In many jurisdictions, gyms are opening back up so people don't need to spend three plus thousand dollars plus 40 bucks a month for a device. And I think they overestimated their, their projections where people would keep buying them. They didn't. Now they've stopped manufacturing them to sort of, uh, you know, rejig their, their supply to demand. Um, and investors are rightfully knocking their share price down, down 80% uh, over the last year. And this is a company that seems to have lost its way because of it. Carby Levy, thank you so much for, uh, for all your, for your insight on many different subjects tonight. Uh, much appreciated. Have a great weekend. So great being here, Ben. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, Peloton, interesting story. Of course, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be, we'll see what happens. I mean, it was it was such a rush at the beginning of of, uh, of the pandemic. There seemed to be everywhere people were talking about them. And then, of course, as, as Carmi was just mentioning, tough times now apparently lost their way a bit. So we'll see what happens in the future for that company. 